Very warm welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. We're delighted to have Gordon Brown here today to kick off our series on what makes a successful Brexit. He's going to be talking about Brexit and the UK. Gordon Brown needs really no introduction, but as you know, he was Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010, was Chancellor for a decade before that, and was MP for Kirkcaldy and Cowdenbeath until 2015, and is, among many other advisory roles, the UN Special Envoy for Education. With that, um, really the floor, or at least the podium, is yours um, to talk about uh, um, your, your interpretation of this question and where we are on Brexit. Very warm welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I want to talk about how we can reunite a divided country that is increasingly facing an impasse and possibly even deadlock if we are to believe the stories of uh, the last uh, day, day or two. But first of all, I want to congratulate the Institute of uh, Government uh, David Sainsbury, who helped set it up for the enormously important work they do on policy and on decision-making, uh, landmark publications that I've uh, seen and uh, admired greatly, and also thank you, Bronwyn, on the, uh, the, the prescience, uh, uh, the exquisite timing of your, 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 your series, uh, to have uh, a series at the uh, 11th hour, really, uh, at the, at the, when we're in the eye of the storm, uh, to discuss uh, the major issues ahead of us, and uh, if there are some press here, I'll understand if you walk out, if it's the next resignation or the next uh, uh, wave of negotiation uh, that is always happening, happening as, 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 as we speak. But I want to talk about um, something that is putting uh, this debate in what I think is the proper uh, con context. We've had a weekend when we've been discussing uh, whether we'll be a rule taker or rule maker, uh, if the uh, temporary uh, deal that is uh, signed uh, is eventually passed by the House of Commons and agreed by the European Union. But I want to suggest that whatever the deal, whatever the, the deal now is, uh, and whether there is a deal or not, the long-term questions are unresolved. Just think of it this way. Uh, over the last two years, we have had a series of negotiations. Over the next few years, lie ahead a further series of negotiations on the eventual deal between the European Union and the United Kingdom. But as we stand, and in any deal that is published, uh, what our relationship is to the single market is unresolved, what our relationship is to the customs union long term is unresolved, whether we're going to go the way of Norway in the long term is unresolved or the way of Canada in the long term is unresolved, whether we have the power to sign uh, free uh, trade uh, deals uh, without conditions is unresolved, uh, the future of Northern Ireland is unresolved. After two years of negotiations, after all the intense uh, publicity, none of the major issues are resolved. We've got, at best, coming our way a short-term temporary fix in the absence of having a long-term endpoint, a destination, a resting place, whatever you call it, a safe harbour. And we've got a short-term temporary fix coming our way if we have a deal in the absence of a long-term endpoint that is agreed. Indeed, we have a short-term fix ahead of us because the Cabinet and the Government cannot agree what their long-term destination is. And indeed, it's probably worse than that because the selling point of the short-term temporary fix, if it is actually agreed and then published and then debated in the House of Commons, 
will be to the hard Brexiteers that still open to them is the option of going the way of a hard Brexit, the way of Canada, and that will be one of the selling points the Prime Minister will use to try to get the deal through. Now, normally in a negotiation, you start by having a long-term objective and then you see how you can get to it. The British public would be absolutely shocked and maybe will be in the next few weeks when they find that after two years of negotiation, we have years ahead of negotiation, we have no agreement on the long-term objectives that we're trying, uh, trying to reach, and indeed there is no possibility of this cabinet or this government getting a consensus in its present form on these long-term objectives. If you think of it this way, the decision has been made not to have a decision. The decision is actually indecision. What Churchill said about his party in the 1930s, that they were resolved to be a resolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, and all-powerful for impotence, is coming home to us today. No long-term plan to be announced. Everything still open, even if we have a deal. And what we're finding also is that the process itself uh, is defective also. The process, as we can see now, over these last two years of making the decision, has been inward-looking. It has been non-inclusive. Very few people have been consulted on the outside in any serious way. It has been partisan because it's been driven, I'm afraid, by internal party considerations. Uh, and it's been piecemeal because many of the long-term issues have not been addressed. Because think of it this way, if you cannot have an agreement on a long-term objective, a long-term destination, then you cannot answer the questions about what our long-term economic future is likely to be, what the investment decisions that companies are going to make are going to be. You put at risk the future of the union because many issues relating to Scotland and the United Kingdom, Wales and the United Kingdom, as well as Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom are unresolved. Our role in the world is undecided because we cannot say exactly where we're going to be in relation to the European Union in the years to come. And of course, as we found in the Brexit debate, uh, many of the problems raised by Brexit cannot be solved by Brexit because they're related to the social fabric of the United Kingdom and people's sense that they're losing out as a result of not just economic change in this country, but global change uh, as a whole. But what the debate has shown is the worst of British short-termism. You know that we used to say that short-termism bedeviled British industry. And I remember I used to say when I was doing lectures that in the 50s we, we managed decline, in the 60s we mismanaged decline, and then in the 70s we declined to manage. And you can think of this debate, which is the ultimate in short-termism, because we made a decision to have a referendum as a country without publishing sufficient information about the consequences of a Brexit. We then saw the government rush into Article 50 and decide that they would have a date for withdrawal before they had a plan for doing it. We then found a few weeks ago that we had uh, no deal preparations, uh, hardly ever being undertaken and underway. And so we've had the ultimate in short-termism in this debate. And I look back on two instances where we have proven that we can actually do things in a different way. The Macmillan government in the 1950s, if you look at two major documents that were commissioned by Harold Macmillan after he became Prime Minister in 1957 on the future of Britain, 
uh, the documents that eventually led him to advocate that we join the European Union. These were serious documents that looked at the geopolitical, economic, industrial, financial implications of any change in Britain's status, partly as a result of Suez, partly because the European decision was something that we had to make. A serious uh, document looking in breadth, you can see them in the Cabinet papers, at what the future of Britain would be under all sorts of different scenarios. And then, although I, I, I make this uh, point not boastfully, then when it came to the euro, we did have 23 separate investigations into all aspects of the euro and what that would mean. And these were hundreds of thousands of words that were published in open, transparent way, widespread consultation, which eventually read, led to the decision, but a process of decision-making that was in-depth in a way that we have not seen on a far bigger issue than simply the euro now we're debating the whole of our relationship uh, with, 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 with Europe. And so there you have this problem that it's not just a problem with the decision itself, there's a problem with the process. And I just think about this. This process goes on for several years more. Even if there is a deal in the next few weeks and we leave in March, and that all goes to the plan that the Prime Minister would like to adopt, she has at least two more years of negotiation on almost exactly the same issues of single market, customs union, relationship, Norway, Canada, whether we can have free trade agreements with other countries and everything else, Northern Ireland's back on the agenda. And the public uh, will be exposed to the same process of inward-looking decision-making driven by partisan considerations, not inclusive, not open, not allowing the public a way in, a way that might satisfy the very grievances that in some respects brought about Brexit in the first place. People feeling that they are not listened to, that they're not consulted, that there's a Westminster bubble, that they're not brought into these discussions that are held by the elites amongst themselves. And that is going to be the way of the next few years. You know, Einstein, when he, he said his definition of insanity, I would say inanity rather than insanity, was to do the same thing all over again and expect a different result. That is the prospect we are looking forward to. Another two years of negotiations with the same issues, government expecting that something may change, uh, and the most likely thing is we end up sitting here two years from now, uh, or maybe even longer, looking at exactly the same problems unresolved if nothing changes. And let me just say, before I make my proposals, if nothing changes, then we will be an even more divided Britain. There is no doubt in my mind about that. More divided than during the three-day week of the 70s, more divided than during the miners' strike of the 80s, more divided than the poll tax disagreements of the early 90s, more divided than over the Iraq war. I think back to history and think of the Corn Law agitation. I think of the Irish question in the, 1980s, in the 1880s, and you think back to these major internal political agreements in the House of Commons, but also to these massive disagreements within the country in our last 30 years, and I don't think we are as divided then as we are likely to be now. And the effect on the cohesion of our country and the corrosion of trust in our democracy could be absolutely uh, uh, mind-blowing. If you think of the loss of trust in politics over these last few years, 20% uh, 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 didn't trust the government. Now 60% don't trust the government. The loss of faith in politicians, 20% didn't trust the Prime Minister. Now it's nearly 55% don't trust the Prime Minister. And then you think of the consequences of a long-term breakdown of trust. Well, you see it in other countries. 
allegations on all sides of betrayal, that becomes the language of politics. And Remainers who are young say that the old people have let them down by mortgaging the future. Remainers uh, say uh, that the campaign was conducted in a fraudulent way during the referendum and that's now proven by the Electoral Commission. Leavers say that they were promised all these things would happen the day after Brexit. They'd be better off. The health service would have all this uh, more money. The fishing industry would be free to do what it wants. It would be an easy Brexit could be happen almost overnight. And most of all, Brexiteers thinking, we voted because we wanted to be listened to. We thought that we were striking a blow for a more open discussion with us about what's happening. And now we find we're not being listened to and none of the Brexit options are satisfactory uh, as we find in all the opinion polling to the Brexit voters. So the betrayal or the sense of betrayal that people feel is corrosive of our democracy and of trust in politics. And if you just think forward, a year from now, two years from now, the same debates going on and the same issues still being uh, uh, thought out because these are the questions that remain unresolved. The effect on public opinion is something that I hesitate uh, to, to, to contemplate. So we have a context now uh, where we don't have agreement on a long-term destination uh, where we have a breakdown in trust and division within the, the electorate, uh, where allegations of betrayal create a poisonous and toxic atmosphere in politics, politics and are a fertile ground, I'm afraid, for those kinds of politicians who don't uh, offer uh, solutions or positive solutions, but whose stock in trade, as we find right around the world, uh, the stock in trade is simply to articulate anger on behalf of people without giving any positive way forward. So unless something changes, I believe that we're in for a very difficult period ahead. And I want to suggest how we might do something about it. Our challenge is to reunite a divided country. Our challenge is to see if there's a way to end the deadlock. My sense is that the challenge of reuniting a divided country and given that we have so many years ahead of this debate, is we have to break out of the Westminster bubble. We have to start listening to the people of this uh, country on issues that concern them, and therefore we have got to find a way of doing so. So think forward the next uh, few weeks. I'm absolutely clear that it would be a travesty of democracy if there was not an open debate in the House of Commons uh, on the deal. Uh, I know that the Procedure Committee of the House of Commons is going to recommend that there are three options for the debate when it comes back to the House of Commons, the meaningful vote, as it's called. Uh, one of them is to hold the, a vote on the government's proposals first, in which case almost every other potential amendment falls. Surely we've got to argue that the correct way in an open democracy that is outward-looking, that is trying to connect with people, is to allow all views to be heard and to have amendments first uh, before you have uh, the conclusive uh, vote. And one of these amendments must be the opportunity to renegotiate the deal that the government has done if people find that unsatisfactory. There is no reason, in my view, uh, and I'm used to European negotiations, I'm also, by the way, quite used to negotiations with the Ulster Unionists, uh, there is no reason why you cannot go back to Brussels, in my view, and say, this deal is not the one we want, this is another deal. So the alternative in this vote 
when it comes to the House of Commons, whenever it comes, is not no deal versus the only deal on the table. It seems to me it is possible to go back and renegotiate. I, for one, uh, have always said that I think there will be a, a second uh, referendum. Uh, I believe that in the end, uh, the situation will have been seen to have changed since 2016 and that the people uh, should, in the end, have the final, final say. But I also believe that we have got to find a far better way of listening and hearing the voices of people. So what I want to suggest is we have a new kind of royal commission, a royal commission of a very uh, different type from the usual uh, great and the good, uh, sitting there pontificating, as you might say, as Harold Wilson said, taking minutes and spending years. Uh, we need a new kind of commission, one that is uh, a commission that is charged with hearing the voices of the British people, going out into the regions and into the nations of the United Kingdom, raising with people in deliberative uh, hearings and consultative exercises uh, the questions that they have uh, about migration, sovereignty, about the long-term economic future of the country, seeing, I suppose I'm saying, if we can find a way that a consensus is possible uh, on a key set of issues that appear to divide people fundamentally at the moment, but in my view are capable of being resolved if we have an honest and full and indeed comprehensive debate on this in these issues. And the aim of such an exercise, because we have these years ahead of us, is not to think short-term that we need a fix or we'll have to have a fix tomorrow, is to say, how can we engage the country in a dialogue, in a conversation about the key issues that matter, listen to the voices that are coming from both sides of industry. I do not think the government has been listening to either side of industry in the way that it should during this debate, but also the voices of the regions and the nations. Now, what then are the long-term issues that have got to be resolved and have got to be part of this debate? I think on the table has got to be our long-term economic future. I don't think, in a strange way, that despite two years of negotiations and two years of debate, it has been on the table. Take the car industry as one example. It is true uh, that if there are tariffs and customs duties, uh, then the car industry faces an enormous problem. 10% tariff selling uh, exports, 4.5% uh, with imports, 4.5 billion costs. It is also true that if you have uh, no customs union, you have the friction uh, when parts and components are going back and forward. The mini crankshaft alone goes back and forward four times before it is sold on to someone probably uh, and usually someone in cont continental uh, Europe. So you have this problem of friction. But you have an even bigger problem that we've got to address, which symbolises the problem that we've got to address about our long-term economic future that doesn't seem to be as part of the debate as it should be. We produce about 1.7 million cars a year. 1.3 million of them are exported. We actually export 1.6 million cars, so uh, engines. So 80% of our cars and more of our engines are actually exported from Britain. The car industry in Britain, which was built up in the last 30 and 40 years with mainly foreign owners, depends on an export trade that is 80% of what it, uh, it produces. The home market does not uh, cover the production of the car, the, the car industry. But every car company in Britain at the moment is making a decision very soon about their long-term investment. They're moving from diesel to non-diesel cars, of course, but they're also moving into electric cars, and they're also, of course, uh, moving into driverless cars. And that new technology dominates 
uh, the investment decisions that these uh, car companies are going to make, and they have a choice. If they're exporting to mainland Europe and 80% of their cars are exports, more than half of them to the European Union countries itself, then they are faced with a choice. Do they build their cars and their engines in mainland Europe where the market fundamentally is biggest or do they make the decision in, in Britain? And these long-term investment decisions have got to be made in the context of what is going to happen to the British economy. What is our relationship long-term going to be with Europe? What is it going to be to the customs union, the single market? And none of these issues at the moment are resolved. We have to debate these issues. Trade. Everybody knows that trade with China and India and Australia and New Zealand and America and so is important. But when you actually look at the figures, 1% of our trade is with India, 1% with uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, 1% with Australia, less than 1% with New Zealand, 1% or so with, with, with Canada, 4 or 5% with uh, China. The vast majority of our trade is with mainland Europe and we have got to have answers and the people will understand if we put that question that there are answers that have to be found. Give you one other example. The European Investment Bank invests 10 billion in, in, in Britain since, since 2010. Uh, that's a European investment bank run by the countries of the European Union. Infrastructure investment in Britain has depended on that for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Britain is a shareholder. Leave the European Union in March. We have to leave the European Investment Bank. We have no other arrangement yet being proposed, but we know that we're going to be forced out of the European Investment Bank, that they will not accept us. But we should be thinking now about a partnership with the European Investment Bank if we leave, or certainly what we do on these big issues. So our economic future, and I give only these three examples, has got to be part of this debate. The future of our union has got to be part of this debate. There are two major problems that arise uh, and I don't think it's properly appreciated in London from the devolution uh, settlement and what happens if we leave the European Union. The first is that because of the devolution settlement, uh, which said that all powers are transferred to Scotland and Wales unless specifically not transferred, then there should have been an automatic transfer of powers over agriculture and fisheries, regional policies, some aspects of state aids and so on and so forth from Brussels through London but to Edinburgh to Belfast and to Cardiff. But the government decided in their wisdom that they would hold these powers in Westminster for, for seven, seven years or up to seven, seven years. And they decided to defy the devolution settlement uh, by saying that aspects of the UK single market overrode that despite the fact that the legislation previously has said otherwise. And that is an issue that is unresolved. But unresolved also for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, uh, and for the regions, is access to Europe, access to markets. So we leave the European Union in the 2014 referendum. What we said was that Scotland should stay part of the United Kingdom, and this is a very strong argument because our influence in the world depends on the combined weight of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England in international councils, in, through the United Kingdom being a powerful force in the G7, the G20, the United Nations and NATO and, and, and everything else. But of course... What Scottish uh, nationalists are saying is that they were promised that there would be access to Europe and that while uh, our international efforts were through the United Kingdom, they were always as part of the European Union as well. And nobody has come up with a way, although I think there is a way, and I could suggest it, of 
allowing this question to be solved, that if you promise that you will have access through the United Kingdom uh, to the international community, and then you cut yourself off from the European Union against the will of the Scottish people in particular, I'm talking about here, what do you then do about it? But it raises fundamental questions about the future of, of, of the Union, which are a risk to the Union and will become clear over the next two years as these debates keep going on and on. Third issue that we've got to be clear about, our influence in the world. Now, since Churchill, we've talked about three concentric circles of influence. So that Britain has got influence in the world through our relationship with the Commonwealth, through our relationship with America, through our relationship with Europe. Uh, And uh, the European Union, of course, was the later relationship that was formulated uh, in the 60s and 70s, and we, we finally joined in 75. But of course, the point of three circles of influence, these concentric circles, was Churchill's view and others' view that the more influence we had in Europe, the more influence we would have in Washington. The more influence we had in Washington, the more influence we'd have in Brussels, in Bonn, in Berlin, and in, in, in Paris. Now, part of that equation is no longer true, because if we were to leave the European Union, Uh, then we lose influence in Europe and we have to ask what does that mean for our role in the world and what debate is actually taking place on that at the moment that can solve some of these problems. I for one think that we should be thinking of this fourth concentric circle of influence and that is our role in international institutions. Uh, And if Britain had influence in the United Nations more than it has at the moment and we've always been afraid of the United Nations as a colonial power because they would actually tell us what to do about the uh, remaining dependent territories and colonies, uh, if we had more influence in the World Bank, in the International Money Fund, the World, World, that would make a difference. But no government paper, no uh, recommendation, nothing has come that suggests that there is any thinking going on about this. And finally, long-term issue, the health of the social fabric. We know perfectly well that many of the reasons that people voted for Brexit uh, was nothing to do with Brexit itself. It was their frustration at the way economic change is hitting their communities, hitting the industrial towns, hitting the manufacturing centres, hitting the regions that we know are incredibly important to the future of our country, particularly of manufacturing. And the, the discontent that people felt was reflected in wanting to be listened to in one way, and this was a chance for people to want to listen to them. But you know, the social fabric in our country is breaking down. It was based on four pillars One, that if you worked hard, you'd get a decent wage. The second was there was a ladder of opportunity and therefore upward mobility for people who strove and had ambition. Thirdly, that top pay was related to merit and effort and contribution to the community. Fourthly, that there was a minimum below which people should never fall, either in the provision of, both in the provision of public services and in terms of income. Now, all four of these pillars are breaking apart. Wages are not big enough for millions of people to escape poverty. And there are now 4 million, and it's rising to 5 million, children in poverty, mainly in working families. Upward mobility is far more restricted now, sadly, than it was when I was at school and going to university with the chances that, 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 I, that I had. Uh, top pay is, is out of relation, as people know, uh, to merit, effort, and contribution to the community. And the differential, which was 20 times 30 years ago between the top pay of an executive and the average pay, is now about 120 times. And the minimum is not being uh, d- delivered uh, for many millions of people who are either in poverty or suffering from inadequate public services. And these are issues that, if not addressed, 
will lead to the same frustrations, the same sense of betrayal, the same uh, breakdown of trust that I've, been, that I've been talking about. So it is absolutely essential that we don't have simply a short-termist view of the next few days, the next few weeks, and the next few months. I'm happy to discuss all proposals that people have and what my view and other people's views are on them. It is essential that we don't make the same short-termist mistake uh, over the next two years that we've made over the last two years. We have to begin by accepting that this process of discussion, and the public will be shocked to find it because 80% of the public want this to be over with now. They'll be shocked to find that it's true that this process will go on for months and for years ahead. We have got to find a basis on which we can discuss the problems and complexity of the problems sensibly with the British people. We need a vehicle for doing that. It used to be said of the Habsburgs, monarchs, that they would never learn by the mistakes. Uh, and it was said of the Romanovs that they learnt nothing and forgot nothing. And there is a danger of this process that we've had over the last two years simply being repeated and refreshed over the next two years uh, with the same problems that, I, that I've just identified. We are like as if in a boat at sea where we've got no direction, where we've got no route map, and where we've got no compass at the moment. And we're throwing off the lifeboats and throwing away the life uh, uh, jackets. Uh, at great uh, speed. We have got to restore a sense of unifying purpose in this country, a sense of direction, and we've got to find a process for doing so, as well as developing the right answers. I think it's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for those who are concerned about proper government. It's a challenge for those who are concerned about community cohesion. It's a challenge for those who are worried about the fracturing of Britain. I hope we can all address the challenge together. Thank you. Gordon Brown, thank you very much indeed. You have been talking about the long term and how this debate is going to be with us for some time. I do want to ask you, though, about the, the shorter term. Just to be yeah. absolutely clear about your views on a referendum. You said you think there will be one. Do you think there should be one? Uh, yes, but I, the timing, I think, is an issue. I, I, I don't think you can resolve this issue in the final analysis without another referendum. And I think at some point the people, and there's not it's not clear exactly where, where support lies on this, will want to have the final say, but they've got to be persuaded that the situation has changed. They're not being asked simply to uh, say they were wrong in 2016. They're being asked to deal with a new situation that has arisen where we knew... M Let me give you two examples of why. Migration. In 2016, the debate on migration did not happen on the Remain side in the referendum. David Cameron deliberately decided that he would not debate the issues of migration, even though they were being pushed by the Leave side. And I, I to be fair, I had long uh, discussions with them twice about this, saying you've got to get these issues out into the open, we've got to put our, put our case. But since 2016, what has happened in Europe? Uh, Germany now registers workers who come to their country. Switzerland now has registration of jobs. They're in within the single market for this purpose, registration of jobs. Belgium requires people to leave after nine months if they don't have a job. France has just passed legislation on what's called social dumping, that you cannot be paid Latvian wages as a Latvian worker working in France. You've got to be paid uh, French wages. Everybody knows that we need to do something about the pressure on communities that I urge David Cameron to take action on, where the public services uh, were, were under pressure because of high levels of uh, change in the communities. So since 2016, something has changed. 
And so these are the sort of arguments that we've got to be able to get across, but you've got to get them across uh, uh, now in different forums, and you can't just rely on one single uh, event like, like the referendum to do so. Sovereignty is another issue. Since the Treaty of Lisbon, I don't think people realise this, the Treaty of Lisbon required national identity to be taken into account by the European Court of Justice in all its judgments. Now, since then, we keep saying or hearing that the British courts are powerless, they can do absolutely nothing, the European Court of Justice overrules everything. But look at the judgments in Spain, in Belgium, in Italy, in France and in Germany. And all the judgments are now requiring uh, that the national identity, the national institution, the national tradition, the national judgment of France be taken into account and that the European Court of Justice cannot overrule these things. And the world is actually changed since 2016. And it's some of these points that we've got to find a way of getting across to people. You could actually solve the problems that people raised about migration in this new context with the measures that I'm talking about. I actually think Ian Duncan Smith blocked any discussion of them when he was at the Department of Work and Pension because he didn't want a compromise with Europe. You can solve some of these problems that have been raised about take-back control and about sovereignty. The, the, the data, the information is there, but we need a means of being able to talk to people about it, not just in the heat of a four-week campaign, uh, but over a period of time. So I cannot tell you when this referendum will happen. What I do, do believe is that there will be a referendum at, at some point, and I do believe the best way of expressing it is, is that the situation has changed and the people have got a right to have the final say. That is the best way, in my view, of expressing it. Thanks. And not to dwell on this point too much, but do you think that that should be the policy of the Labour opposition to keep this option open? Uh, we have Keir Starmer saying today uh, that that absolutely should be the, 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 the policy. Brexit can be stopped. He said yeah. Jeremy Corbyn implied on, on, on Friday to Desh Beagle, yeah. look, Brexit has happened, the referendum A lot happened, happened between Friday yeah. and Sunday, as you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, a, a, lot, a lot did happen in this weekend that was supposed to sort it all out. Um, but you, you think the Labour opposition should well, keep I, open I, the option of I, a I think what happens in the House of Commons, I, I've been looking at this. I mean, the Procedure Committee will report tomorrow. It will recommend how this meaningful vote is addressed. Uh, even if uh, there is no uh, lawmaking uh, right, there is a right of Parliament to draw up amendments, to make amendments, and then when the withdrawal bill, if it comes, comes to the House of Commons, they've got the right to amend the law itself, the proposed law itself. So I think you can propose amendments, and I think we've got to insist that if you have an open democracy, an open process of decision-making, there's got to be a right to make amendments. I personally think there is nothing wrong with saying that the government's got to go back to renegotiate. I, I, I don't see that as... Uh, uh, you know, it, I dealt with the European Union for many years, and the Irish used to come back and forward renegotiating uh, on all sorts of things. And, and when uh, other things happened in the European Union, countries came back and forward. Uh, you can't say that there's a fixed process that once you have one European Council, everything's over. So I think you could go back and renegotiate. And of course, you have the option of extending an, a, a, the, the, the Article 50, 50 process. So I don't think we should get into this mindset that the only choice is between the, the deal that is offered, if there is a deal offered, and no deal. I think there are other options, and, and it's the duty of Parliament to explore these options. Uh, I'm not there, and I don't know all the, the, the machinations that are going to happen and the manoeuvres, because there will be Remainers who will vote against, against, against the deal, and there will be Leavers who vote against the deal. Uh, and the, it will be a very complex uh, set of uh, procedures, but in the end... I think you've got to have the right to, to amend and to send back and, and perhaps to extend the negotiation. 
Thanks. You, you were just mentioning migration, and uh, you said, look, people, and they're, they're the concerns that led to the Brexit vote need to be addressed. And you were talking about ways Switzerland and others uh, manage migration, register yep. migrants. What, what would you like to see? You've, well, you've written about this. Yeah, what, what's surprising is that there is very little debate about this uh, at the moment, partly because the numbers have gone down uh, recently. But the government is not... Numbers from Europe. Even from Europe. But the numbers are not... The, the government is not proposing uh, any new form of border control, as far as I can see, rather than a statement that, that you know, we control our borders. Uh, what they're proposing is point control. I mean, that's what they're proposing. So it, let, let's say you're, you're, you're a European citizen coming from Latvia or for Germany or for France, and you come to the Republic of Ireland. Under the government's proposals, you're perfectly free to walk across the border. You're a legal uh, migrant looking for work in the Republic of Ireland, but suddenly you've become an illegal immigrant into the United Kingdom when you cross the border, unless you're on holiday or unless you're a student or something like that. The only way the government is proposing to change things uh, as far as uh, detecting this form of illegal immigration is by having what they call point control. The employer has got to identify someone if they're coming for a job and then report them. The landlord, if someone's trying to rent a house, has got to report them. So... I don't think that the government can actually satisfy people that they've got, um, they've, they've got a completely different system of migration control uh, and border control as a result of the, the, the measures. But what I can say is if we were able to do what other countries in Europe seem quite happy to do within freedom of movement, and you could be still part of the single market, uh, you could register jobs uh, when they become vacant at local job centres. The Swiss require jobs in high unemployment areas to be registered at the job centre, so in effect, local people have the first option of getting these jobs. Uh, when someone comes to the country in Germany, they're required to register as being there. When someone doesn't get a job after nine months in Belgium, you're required to leave. When someone's in France and they're, they're subject to, uh, to uh, laws in France, you cannot be paid lower wages uh, simply because the wages in the country you're coming from are lower. You've got to be paid the French wages. Now, all these things would change the attitude that people had in this country uh, to what they believe was a situation uh, that wasn't properly controlled, uh, but we, ha- we haven't put the government hasn't put these forward, and they, uh, and they and, could, and they could still do so. Of all, of all these, I think these all points. these things could be looked at, and there should be a debate on them. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I've got all, all the answers, but but these are measures taken within freedom of movement by countries within or attached, like Switzerland, to the European Union. And there has been no, as I see it, European Court of Justice uh, uh, rulings that say these things are not possible. But if these things had been known in 2016 in the debate, there would have been a very different uh, atmosphere about the debate on on, on migration. And equally, there would have been a different atmosphere around that slogan, take back control, if people realised that the European Court of Justice could not do many of the things that were alleged of them. But because the debate in 2016 was basically... The politics of fear of immigration on one side versus the fear of living standards falling on the other side, none of the major issues, none of the major issues were given the airing that they, they deserved as, as, uh, for a rational discussion of what was the right way forward for our country. You're also talking in your speech about the union and the risk to the union. Do you think this has set in train uh, pressures that, 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 are going, that really are a bigger threat to the Union, both Scotland but even uh, the question of a border pole in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I, I think, I think these, these are all issues that the United Kingdom would have to face uh, if, uh, if we finally left the European Union, particularly if, we, if there was a Canada-style deal. And, and let's be honest, the, the Brexiteers are being told even now by the chief whip of the Conservative Party that they can vote happily for Mrs May's deal because on offer is still a, a Canada-style uh, hard Brexit uh, option. 
And yes, I think it does cause major problems. The, the, the irony, of course, is that the Scottish nationalists would, would die for the sort of deal that the Ulster Unionists are opposing. Because the Ulster Unionists don't want to be attached to the single market, but of course the Scottish nationalists want to be attached to the single market and have a completely different kind of uh, regime. But the two issues I raised are, are, go to the heart of what the problem is in the Union. It, the devolution uh, that should have been automatic raises the question of how serious uh, this government is about... Uh, uh, devolution, and if they don't believe in it, then people will start to draw draw, draw conclusions. It, there is more centralisation going to take place in Whitehall as a result of leaving the European Union, because all these powers are going back to Whitehall from Brussels. And so, in relation to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, this is a far more centralised Britain that you would have after uh, March next year. Uh, and if these powers are not devolved, then they're held in the centre, and the principle of devolution seems to seems to be at risk. But the other issue that I think will concern people, could you not find a way uh, of, and why are they not discussing, a way of giving devolved uh, parliaments or assemblies access to, 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 to Europe? I mean, for non-devolved areas, why can't the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Assembly talk to the European Union about uh, measures that would be relevant? I, I mentioned an investment bank. If Britain doesn't want it, Scotland would want an investment bank, want to have a joint venture with the European Investment Bank, banned under the devolution settlement mm. because it's a mm. foreign treaty. But I see no reason why that shouldn't be able to happen. But what I'm suggesting is not the proposal itself. I'm suggesting we should be thinking about these long-term issues. Mm. Uh, and uh, instead of a debate that is internally driven by what suits uh, the backseat drivers, the hard Brexiteers of the Conservative Party, because that's, that's what it is. Uh, they are the uh, English nationalist tail, if you like, w- wagging the British bulldog on this occasion. I mean, that's what's happening. Uh, we don't, therefore, because that's happening, we don't have the long-term issues. We don't, we don't, they're not debated. And uh, it's, a failure, it's a failure of our system that we cannot get these issues out into the open and debate them. And we have got to find a process by which that happens. Now, if everything was going to be resolved over the next two, mo- two months or two weeks, or, you know, then what I'm suggesting would be irrelevant. Uh, because people say, well, it's all going to be sorted. It's not going to be sorted. We've got two more years of this, maybe three, maybe four. This is right at the top of the agenda for years ahead. We must get away from the short-termism that has bedeviled everything we've done or the government has done in the last uh, few, few years on this and take a long-term view. Can we have an honest debate with the British public, a dialogue, a conversation with the hope uh, of finding a way to, to, to uniting a divided country. It is the central question, I think, that we've got to address. Mm. So you're putting your, your, your recommendations, your hopes, really, on calling for a debate with the public rather than setting out... You're not, you're not sitting here telling us what your view of the future yeah, should well, be well, in I, detail. I have views, as you probably can hear. <laughs> but, yeah. yes, I, I think it's more important that we, that we, that we, we encourage this, mm. this debate and dialogue. I mean, I've got my own proposals. I've been giving mm. you them. Mm. But, mm. but I'm saying that unless we are open and understand that there are Leave voters mm. uh, who still are Leave voters, but who might be persuaded that some of the proposals, particularly a hard Brexit, is unacceptable unless we can get through to them and talk to them. And look, there was no campaigning done during the referendum in the industrial towns. Mm. They were in the cities, there was a lot of campaigning, almost none in the industrial towns. And they feel uh, strongly, people who are voters there, and I can understand how they feel, that they're not being listened to. Uh, David has done great work on looking at the regions, and, and that there's a huge amount of work needing to be done on what is the right economic policies uh, that are appropriate to the needs of our, our, our regions because they feel left out and they feel that they're losing out and therefore we've got to find some way of communicating and having this dialogue uh, outside just a four-week cycle of, uh, of an election or, 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 or a vote. 
finally, let me ask you. You said back in June, long five months ago. It's, it's my, it's personally my view that we'll be in Europe, whether back in Europe or still in Europe, uh, in a few years' time. That's still your view. Yes, yes, but I, I've never said that, uh, that uh, I, I or anybody else is going to be inevitably able to stop us leaving. But I do think that the public... You see, there are two views of Britain that are really competing with each other, and I maybe should have said this when I was talking. I mean, there is this sort of myth of Dunkirk that we're better standing alone, aloof, isolated, um, almost glorying in isolation, sufficient unto ourselves, foreign entanglements are a bad thing, the Anglosphere apart. And that's a view that is, I'm afraid, quite widely, widely held. And if you watch the film Dunkirk, it's the view that is expressed in this. I mean, the French didn't have a look in, and nobody else had a look in. It was all... And then there's the other view that I hold, which is that Britain is at its best when it's open, outward-looking, internationally engaged, and that's what makes people proud of Britain. Not the isolation, but the actual engagement and the leadership we can show, uh, despite being a relatively small country in, in the world. And these two booths are competing with each other, but the patriotic view of Britain that is internationalist never really got across during the referendum campaign, despite attempts by some people to try to, try to do that, and it was the right thing to try to do. And, and I think you can persuade the British public that, um, that we are at our best when we're open, outward-looking and engaged, but we have got to attempt to do it, and you've got to have that debate in the dialogue. If you go back to Shakespeare's John of Gaunt, uh, the soliloquy about the sceptered isle and you know, um, uh, the moat defensive, uh, free from foreign powers, he also says in that poem, which is, you know, renowned for deeds uh, in countries uh, far from home, dear for our reputation throughout the world. And, 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 and these two views were even in that poem, uh, written by Shakespeare at that time and that poetry. And these are the two views competing against each other. But I think um, even with uh, Shakespeare and what was seen as a sort of uh, almost a Brexiteer um, uh, soliloquy, uh, you can see that he understands we're an internationalist uh, country. We're, we're outward looking because we're a trading that. The channel is not a moat. It's a highway to the world. And these are the views that we've got to get across. Well, Brexit is renowned throughout the world. <laughs> Let's go to some questions. Maybe not. All right, um, here in the front. If there are people next door, um, the old-fashioned technique of sticking your head around the door will work. Yeah. Hi, um, Adam Payne from Business Insider. Um, just on the referendum stuff, um, we, one argument that's put forward is that the sort of Brexit that the ERG MPs are pursuing a clean, hard, however you want to phrase it, Brexit, doesn't capture the essence of the result of 2016 because it was 52-48. It was a close result. If we did have another referendum and the option to stay in the EU won, but again, it was narrow, perhaps 52-48, or something along those lines, how do you renegotiate your uh, membership of the EU or how do you return to the EU, as it were, in a way which captures the essence of another close result? Well, the, the first thing that is clear to me is if you look at all the opinion polls is that the public, even the Brexiteer uh, voters, are not supporting any of the options. So there's no majority support for any of the options, for Canada, for Norway, for Switzerland, for, uh, for a no-deal... There's no majority support for any of, on, uh, of these options. So if you actually look at public opinion, while people voted for Brexit uh, by 52 to 48 none of the options to implement Brexit seem satisfactory to the people who voted for it. And I think you've got to bear that in mind, that people are looking for something other than what actually uh, these, options, uh, these options are offering. As far as the, the, the referendum is concerned, see, I, I, I'm not going to predict uh, 
uh, when a referendum is going to be. I, I can't do that. And I, I don't know, not being in Parliament anymore, uh, what is exactly the, the terms of the, the decisions that are going to be made by Parliament. What I do know is that they should be in a position to have an open debate on these issues and make uh, recommendations. What I do know also, by the way, under the Fixed Terms Act, I think people should bear this in mind, uh, that governments don't fall easily because of the Fixed Terms Act. Um, that uh, you can change, you're more likely to change your leader than change your government under the Fixed Terms Act. And you can quite easily, in my view, uh, given all these circumstances under the Fixed Terms Act, uh, hold off against having an election for quite a long, a long time. And, you know, for a confidence vote to be successful in forcing an election, you need a two-thirds majority now in the, in, the, in, the, in the House of Commons, which is a very unusual thing, but it's part of the, the, the British Constitution. So I'm not going to predict uh, the different uh, machinations of that. What, what I do know is that the argument that you would have to, to put is that the situation has changed. You're not telling people that you, you somehow know better than, 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 than they did about what their feelings were in 2016. What you're telling people is that you, you, you've got new evidence, you've got new information, you've got new uh, data that shows that the situation has changed. And what we're asking people to do is actually have a final say. So that would be something that Parliament would have to negotiate uh, in terms of what the question was. I, I'm pretty clear that... Uh, that at some point this will come to pass, but I'm not going to predict today what the what the date is, and I think I think it's very difficult to do so. Great front row. Uh, Total Clyton Daily Record. Gordon, you talk about a second EU referendum. Inevitably, you must talk about a second Scottish independence referendum. I'm also intrigued by this idea that Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland could have a could bypass Whitehall, could have a, their own relationships with the European Union. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 Scotland, Scotland is, is different in, 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 this, in this respect. Um, I, there is no doubt that the Scottish Parliament uh, has ambitions, uh, including Labour, uh, possibly some Conservatives, certainly Liberals as well as Nationalists, uh, to have a role in some of these decisions uh, uh, that uh, would be classified as out of bounds for the Parliament at the moment. And I personally think that you've got to be flexible about the, these issues. What I've noticed uh, in the last uh, two years is a far less flexible attitude to how the union should develop in the future. So you have all the rhetoric about our precious union. These are the words you always get, our precious union. But actually, the, the openness uh, to... Uh, Honouring the devolution settlement has, has, has diminished, and that, that, that's a problem. So I, I don't see why the Scottish Parliament shouldn't be able to sign a treaty with the European Union on a, non, uh, on a devolved matter. Not non-devolved matters, but on a devolved matter. And I, I don't see why, even if we were outside the European Union, that would, that, that would be prevented. And I don't see uh, that um, in devolved areas that uh, Westminster should try to say that this is not possible. So I, I think that that's an open... Uh, debate about what should happen. Now, again, I, I'm, what here I'm trying to do is say there are many options open to us as a country, but we're not having a debate on these at the moment. We're in a very narrow uh, area of, of whether... And the area is actually, can we get a short-term temporary fix so that the government can actually say that on March the 29th next year they've left the European Union and yet all the questions are unresolved. We should be having a debate that opens up these issues so that the general public can have a view on them. I think that's uh, unlikely at the moment. Uh, here on the aisle. Uh, th thank you, Sean Spears from Green Alliance. A question on devolution. Um, 
you point out the agriculture and environment are devolved, but of course they were devolved when we were in the European single market. If, if we lose the, leave the European single market and come to the have a sort of UK single mm-hmm. market, how do you make that work? Well, this is the issue, isn't it? I mean, yeah. are, are, are well, they, I, I wonder if you had the answer. I mean, who who decides the, 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 the parameters of the UK single market now? Because if you've devolved agriculture in principle, as well as uh, some of the powers to the Scottish Parliament, and you've assumed, or people have assumed, that all agriculture would be devolved if we left the European Union, uh, then the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, and the Northern Ireland Assembly have got to have a role in how you, how you design the, 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 the internal market of the United Kingdom. And that's what the issue is. The government wants to say, centrally, we will define all the rules of the single market, whereas the, Carwin Jones, is, he's been here, hasn't he? And he, and he, 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 he took a legal action. He took a, a, an action in court against the, the UK government, saying that they that automatically these powers should have come to Wales. And I don't know if that, that's resolved in the courts yet, but he, he, he believes that under the constitution setting up the Welsh Assembly or giving it the, its latest powers, he has the right to have these powers under law, and then it's for the government of the day to, to talk to the various assemblies and, and, and the Scottish Parliament about how you construct the, the, the single market and how you can get an agreement on that. Thanks. Second row here, uh, and then at the door. And then I would try and get as pretty much everyone in. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Sue Street, former yeah. civil servant. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. I thought it was a very compelling and passionate analysis of the predicament and how we find ourselves in it. I wasn't persuaded that you actually believed in the Royal Commission as an answer. Mm. And the more I hear about debating further with everybody how complicated it all is in the knowledge that 80% of people have said they want it all to be done and dusted. I, could you persuade me again that this really yeah, is yeah. the answer? I, I maybe should have said more. I mean, I, I, I use the term a new kind of Royal Commission because it's not the Royal Commission that you, you would be used to as, uh, as looking at it. I want it to be a platform for listening to the views of people out in the regions and in the nations of this country on both sides of industry so you engage with people on the very issues that are problematical, like migration, like uh, the issue of sovereignty, but like our economic future. Uh, and in, in Scotland and Wales, you'd have to talk about the future of the union as well. So these are deliberative exercises. Now, I, I can give you many examples. In, in, in Ireland, before the abortion vote, they had a whole series of deliberative events to, 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 to raise the big questions and then to see if there was how people thought about these before they had the referendum. In Iceland, after the financial crisis, uh, to rebuild the constitution, uh, when they were accusing us of accusing them of being terrorists, I remember this, but when they were rebuilding the, the, the constitution, they had all these deliberative hearings in, in Iceland, a far smaller country, of course, but they had all the... And, they, they, uh, and there are many other countries that have pioneered this idea of, of deliberative uh, uh, assemblies that, that look at the issues in a more uh, systematic way. So you get people together for a day and you talk through the issues. And we did this in 2008-9 on, on the Bill of Rights and on the future of the British Constitution, and they were incredibly successful events because people, you find that people who have a view at the beginning of the day uh, of this uh, change their view during the course of the day because they're, 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 they're now aware of new information, they're now aware of uh, events, they're now aware of developments that are happening, and, and it is a deliberative and iterative process. But my point is, is this. If you don't try to do something like this, 
then we've got a Westminster-focused debate that you know, everybody knows, is driven by internal party considerations, not driven by actually by the national economic interest. It's driven by what is acceptable to certain groups in the governing, governing party. And that is exactly the problem that led to the Brexit vote in the first place, that people felt they weren't being listened to. They felt that everything was happening within a bubble that they didn't have any control over. They felt that this is going to go on forever. And if you have more years like this, then the poison that I'm talking about will, 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 will fester. Now, I think um, this is trial and error as well. You've got, you've, got, you've got to see how this works. You've got to see whether people are engaged. You've got to go to the industrial towns and talk to people and listen to people. And the whole point of a commission is it makes it possible. You'd have to have leavers and remainers on it. You'd have to have uh, people from all sections of society on it. But the commission is there to make possible these, these hearings so that people can uh, express their views and, and, and be uh, open uh, to a dialogue and conversation that might in the end change the views. I, I can't see any other way. Uh, I mean, g- given social media is uh, is so instantaneous, and, and you know, if you can't say it in forty four uh, words, you, you, it's not worth saying. Uh, uh, and given that the newspapers uh, have ceased to be, uh, I mean, thank goodness from my point of view, with the Sun and so on, have ceased to be as important as they were. Um, but given all, given that television does not have the, the audiences that it used to have, you've got to find new ways of, of listening to people and and, and 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 hearing what people have to say. And I tell you, the complaint out in the the constituency that I represent in other constituencies is people are not listening to us, and people must have the chance, and we must find vehicles by which they express their views. So, royal commission suggests an elite. I'm suggesting it's a platform for the voices of people, the people's voice to be heard. Thank you. At the door. And then I'm going to take a batch after that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure uh, the Remain media will be jumping all over this idea of a Royal Commission, but um, here's well, a question well, in what, two what, what does that mean? I, I don't would you like to say who you yeah. are? Yeah, uh, David Banks. I'm, I've got a question in two halves. Which, first of all, it might not be understood well within these walls, but the idea of sovereignty really was understood and focused upon by the people during the referendum. Now, um, One of the reasons why they're so keen on that issue was that the Lisbon Treaty, which you put your name to, took the UK so far away from being able to retain its sovereignty. Now, the second half of the question is, part of the Lisbon Treaty talks about defence, common defence policy, which has been crunching on since the referendum with UK involvement. Presumably you'd be happy with that. UK involvement and Chequers keeps us in. Well, so so your, your, your argument is the hard Brexit is not hard enough. You would go even further. Look, look uh, I'm not talking about my complaint about people who voted in the referendum, as you suggest. I, I'm saying that there is new evidence about what is happening in the European Court of Justice. And I'm saying that contrary to the view that many people put forward, that the Lisbon Treaty actually forces the European Court of Justice and national courts to take into account the national identity, which means the national institutions, the national policies, the national traditions of of, of different countries. And that, I'm afraid, is a fact. Then you go to this, your view of sovereignty. See, I mean, I happen to think that sovereignty is popular sovereignty. So people then have a choice as to whether, in the end, they want to be part of one United Kingdom that is part of Europe or part of a United Kingdom that is not part of, uh, of Europe. Popular sovereignty is what we're really talking about uh, now and, and in the future. It's why the Scots can vote to be part of Britain uh, but also have their own uh, parliament. You don't have to m- make a choice between the two. 
And the idea that we lose all our sovereignty by being part of the European Union just does not ring true. When you look at the decisions that are made by the British Parliament, you look at now the new way that the European Court of Justice is having to work in relation to the Treaty of Lisbon, it's a different picture from what was, uh, what was presented, partly because since 2016 things have started to change. Uh, we're coming towards the end. I'm going to just uh, t- t- take three, and apologies to the others. Uh, here, right at the back, and here on the aisle. They've been very patient, and I'm sorry about the others. Uh, Paul Miners. Hot Paul. Um, Good to see you. Gordon, thank you very much for an excellent keynote address um, and for your support for a second vote. However, a second vote is going to require an extension of Article 50. Can we really expect the EU to allow one of the voting options be to be to reject the deal that they've reached with Theresa May and her government? Surely that pulls the rug from beneath Barnier and from beneath the Council, and that they will only agree to an extension uh, for Article 50 if that is not an option on the ballot. Well, well as, as you know, there's a case in the courts at the moment about Article 50 and what rights people have under Article 50, and that, that's still unresolved. Personally, I don't, I don't think you, you, you're necessarily... I mean, I've got a great deal of respect, uh, Paul, because you were one of our ministers and uh, helped us greatly during the financial crisis, but I, I don't think that the, the European Union would necessarily insist on that. I don't think so. Great. Right at the back. Thanks. Mike White, New European. Nice to see you in uh, full flow. Um, when you answered Bronwyn's question about staying... Being either staying in the EU or being back in a few years' time, you seem to agree, but most of the thrust of your conversation otherwise has been to stress renegotiation, R for renegotiation, not R for remain. Have I got that right? Because you've been sounding as if you assume we're going to leave, but end up roughly in Norway, which would be appropriate for a Scot. But uh, have I got that right? And and would your renegotiation take place quickly before the referendum or after? Thank you. See, I'm not here to make predictions. I mean, look, you've got better people than me to come if you want predictions about what's going to happen in the next uh, few weeks. I'm, I'm here to look at different scenarios and what might happen if certain things uh, were agreed or not agreed. And what I'm saying to you, my main point is this, that if there's no deal or whatever the deal, the problem does not go away. It is still there. Even if you leave the European Union on March the 29th uh, uh, next, next year, All the main issues that I've mentioned today are still unresolved. Uh, When people realise that, they'll be looking for a different way of making uh, making the decisions. So I'm not here to make uh, predictions, and and, and, uh, but I'm here to say if if we if it comes to Parliament as a as a meaningful vote, I'm saying the vote has got to be sufficiently open to allow all options to be considered. And I'm saying that one of these options could be to amend the, the deal, to renegotiate the deal, or to extend Article uh, 50. Even if we leave the European Union, and I would make this point again today that I've made, made before, we must leave open the door with the European Union that we will come back uh, and that there is a chance of coming back. And that is part of the debate that will take place over the next two, 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 two years. Uh, but I'm not here to make these predictions, but I'm here to say if certain things happen, this is what I think should be done. i squeeze in just two tiny questions. They've got to be brief. Here on the aisle and the door. Thanks. I'm Ben Glaze from the Daily Mirror. Um, I'm just wondering what you made of um, Jeremy Corbyn's comments that Brexit can't be stopped. Um, and also, as a former party leader, what, how much of a mess do you think the party's got itself into over Brexit? That would right, be here, a here, leading question. Here, here, and here. can we just take at the same time? And that's the from door. the Daily Mirror, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, William Keegan, The Observer. 
Um, Gordon, you, you, mentioned, you referred to Howard Wilson's great remark about uh, writing minutes and taking years. Um, it seems to me that there is so much damage happening so fast that I'd like to li- uh, ask you whether you could conceive of a very quick modern version of this Royal Commission working pretty fast. <laughs> and I, I might add that um, Harold Wilson knew, that lo- uh, all, all your predecessors knew, that once, you, uh, once, you, once you're outside, it's very difficult to get in. I mean, I, yep. really, won- yep. I really worry whether if, if we go out, there's any chance whatsoever of reapplying within 20 years. Yeah, I, I, I might... We have Jeremy Corbyn. Brexit can't be stopped. Uh, it, what it, a mess. It, uh, it, it may seem strange, but I'm actually going off to Huddersfield this afternoon to do the Harold Wilson Memorial Lecture. <laughs> this evening and uh, I think his phrase a week is a long time in politics has got to be rewritten now isn't it I mean it's um, a few minutes is a long time in, in politics I mean J- Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn I mean he would be the first to say that the conference decision is what he's, up, he's going to uphold so whatever is said in a particular interview and that is that, uh, that uh, we, we want to, to fight this out in the House of Commons and that if necessary uh, a general election if necessary a referendum and that the, the motion actually talks about the single market as well as the customs union and I think you should refer to the conference motion. I mean, Jeremy used to remind me when I was in government that we should be bound by conference motions and uh, <laughs> he always says he is bound by them. So look at the conference motion that Keir Starmer was actually, I think, reading out this morning on the radio. So, so I think that, that deals, with, deals with that. Um, if, if, if Britain has to leave the, the, the European Union, then I, I still believe there, there, is, there is a strong chance of... Uh, of, of coming back. So I, I, I think the one thing we've got to tell voices from Britain to our friends in Europe is that uh, this is not over, that the, 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 the door should be kept open, that the lines of communication should be kept open. I don't want to sound defeatist by saying that we're going to leave because I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying if, if, uh, I believe that one of the issues will be what terms, of course, the European Union would be prepared to offer, and I think that's got to be thought through. And I would, if I was in a position of authority at the moment, I'd be talking to the European Union exactly about uh, what uh, understanding we could have on, on these kinds of issues. I, I believe, and I've talked to both of them about this, uh, Mr Macron and Ms, Mrs Merkel, uh, do want Britain to stay in the European Union. I think it's a myth to say that uh, France wants us to leave or that Germany's given up on us, but, but, but obviously we have got to keep these lines of communication open. Thank you. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, Gordon's got to catch a train to Huddersfield. We clearly could go on even till March 29th uh, on this. Next in the series, Bernard Jenkin on the 21st of November at 9am, Francis O'Grady on the 28th, and not part of this series, but also on Brexit tomorrow morning, uh, the Irish ambassador, Adrian O'Neill. Well, congratulations talking on your about, series. Uh, uh, about that. Thank you very much indeed. Join me in thanking Thank Gordon Bradley.